On episode 226, I'm interviewing Emmett O'Brien, founder of Quiddity. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. Hi, I'm Jamin, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Emmett O'Brien, founder of Quiddity. Established in 2010, Quiddity offers methodologically innovative research, particularly in the use and analysis of naturally occurring data, and especially language, in consumer and social research. Prior to founding Quiddity, Emmett spent six years at Ipsos as Research Development Director. Additionally, he has recently made a name for himself on several of my threads where he has become the naming guru. Emmett, thanks very much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. No, thanks very much for inviting me. It's it's a distinctly uncomfortable experience, but I'm hoping to... <laughs> yeah, just, you know, so the methodology that I use on the show is uh, literally 75% human, uh, where we kind of tell our own story and 25% value with the, yeah. well, hopefully the package is like, you know, the medicine can take us great and make us feel a little bit better well, uh, as well. If, if it helps, part of my philosophy is that the 75% human is where most of the value comes from in research as well. So that there should be a nice sort of uh, uh, convergence there. I love that. Well, let's start off. Tell us a little bit about your parents and how did your upbringing inform your career? It's a difficult question because neither of them were involved in research at all. Mm. Both of them left school very, very early. My dad went back to education in his late 30s mm. and ended up going back to university. So as a young kid, this was mind-blowing to me. You know, like there was an adult man going to college. I didn't realize it was an unusual thing to do. But what it taught me was that it's never too late to learn. It's, you know, like the philosophy of lifelong learning. I got that from my dad. But also that it's great value in doing things differently. You know, striking out on your own, doing things maybe that other people might not encourage you to do or might discourage you to do that if you, you know, sort of have the motivation and the incentive that, you know, following your own path is is rewarding intellectually, spiritually, if not always financially, but it's, you know, like a good way to go. So I would think that that was very much an inspiration for me. My mother was quite creative. She, you know, she worked, I wouldn't say her profession defined her, but her guard, you know, she was very much into gardening and the idea of creative is very important to me in research. And I think it's important for any business that you're able to think laterally, you're able to make connections between things that aren't obvious. So I think the environment that you're raised in just has such a huge influence on, you know, on the type of values and the type of things that you see as interesting or that have interest to you. So digging in with your dad a little bit, he went back late 30s. Was the juice worth the squeeze, as they say? Did um... I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Sorry. So uh, it's, an, I guess, an Americanism. Uh... No, so I was thinking today, like, uh, the line from George Bernard, Shaw about, you know, it's about Americans and English people being divided by a common language. That's <laughs> so, so great. And it would be a perfect segue if I was ready to move on, but I'm not yet. So, uh, but talking about your dad, so, you know, he invested time and money in going back and getting his education and furthering his education. 
Was there a positive outcome that warranted that investment? Uh, he became a teacher then. Mm, so a complete pivot on his career. Oh, no, he was, uh, so he was a fitter. I don't know what, the, what you call them in America, as again, divided by common language. So installing conveyors and things like that, very manual work. And he went, he took up German and Spanish, went back to university, trained as a teacher and became a teacher so it was a vocation which then obviously changed changed his life you know wow that's that is amazing that's a huge transition yeah before he was a teacher i mean he, he was one of these people and you meet them in life that are almost in the wrong jobs that you know maybe haven't found a path into the job that they should be in and sometimes life is just like that and i mean he was lucky enough to find a, a job that he was really really motivated most motivated by man what a significant move especially later in your life right yeah uh, being willing to step out and take that kind of a career change yeah did he wind up retiring in that profession he did I mean, as you say, it takes a lot and it's different worlds as well. And I think that's one of the things that I've always found interesting and not to go, but I don't want to spend 45 minutes talking about my dad and my family. I don't either. <laughs> hey, it's, it's good stuff. But I mean, one of the things was that he was born in Ireland, moved to England like a lot of people did at his time for work, then moved back to Ireland. And when he moved back to Ireland, like he was very young, but he had an English accent. So he was an outsider. Mm -hmm. in Ireland and he was always a bit of an outsider and for me you know part of my research is very much more about sociology than psychology so I'm interested in looking at the big picture and where things fit in within the culture and I think that sort of outsider perspective was I'm sure he didn't want to transfer you know to me but it, it is something where you try to work out at how a culture works and how do you fit in and what are the certain nuances that you have to learn to, to fit in or that you can even observe. So that sort of stuff, I mean, it's the type of thing that a lot of people just pick up instinctively and don't make their career. You know, people who are successful in any walk of life have to have that sort of sensitivity to environment. But I was always interested from an analytic perspective, always, you know, sort of looking on rather than possibly actively participating. Right. So talking about language, Quiddity, you started this business in 2010, I believe. Tell me about the name. So the name is, I mean, one of the things about that, so Quiddity means is the essence of something. What makes a thing a thing, which is an awful, awful definition of something. I know you're interested in entrepreneurship and things like that. So you could, the Quiddity of an entrepreneur is what makes an entrepreneur an entrepreneur. How do, you know, what is it about someone that would make you recognize them as an entrepreneur? It could be, you know, psychological characteristics. It could be, you know, the way they hold themselves, the way they interact, the way they, I suppose, are very welcoming of relationships, being able to skillful, you know, at managing relationships and th things like that. So the quiddity is really about the essence of something. Yeah, I, uh, as soon as I booked this interview with you, um, I looked it up and it, it was the essence of a thing like getting to the real name you know and, it, and it, for me it was i i gotta be honest i didn't know what the word meant being an american and no, no, uh, to be honest most people uh, and I, it's actually a talking point for most people when you know i either introduce myself or they get in contact with me and i mean for the first few years it was i i don't know if you're, you're and i won't judge you if you aren't but if you're familiar with harry potter of course 
in Harry Potter Quidditch, the sport that Quidditch, they yeah. everyone thought that you know people would just go Quidditch is that the Harry Potter Quidditch is that the Harry Potter thing? So people <laughs> thought I was you know some sort of I was wizard. I founded a business to make a Harry Potter reference, you know, which I mean right. I like Harry Potter, but that wasn't my motivation. That wasn't the intent. No, I mean, so the reason I think it's so relevant for our industry because our industry is bent on human understanding and discovery when you kind of pull back language is the thing that embedded in language is culture and connectivity, right? It's our lens by which we understand and process the world and, and really define it. And if you look across you know, different languages, I learned this very early in my career, my very first project that was in America, Europe, and Japan. And the Japanese translation, I thought that was like the hardest thing for me to get done because every time I would have a translation company do, you know, and these are local people uh, in Japan, do the translation, the client would read the translation and say, no, this is wrong. And so the point being that there's a lot of ambiguity around the way that you should ask that question in context of what the intent was. And also the person that was, you know, kind of going through it. So, you know, I started doing a lot of research actually on language at that particular point. Not that I'm a linguist or expert on the subject, but it has, as I've gotten older, become really apparent to me that language is the tool by which obviously we communicate, but then ultimately understand and process and fit into the world. So... Quiddity, you came up with the name because you felt like it was specifically addressing what or communicating what to the marketplace. What was the signal with that name? So I like the idea of detailed description. So one of the things that I think that market research often does is examines or studies things from the point of view of, say, the client or the corporation or the organization that's trying to under, un, understand it, which gives a particular perspective. And it sort of emphasizes, I suppose, the corporate priorities or the client priorities, which is absolutely fine. But there's another perspective, which is the perspective of, I suppose, you know, sort of a, a more human-centered, but also trying to understand a phenomenon within the broader culture. So there's two moves. The first move is, you know, putting the client perspective to the rear and putting the customer perspective ahead of it. But then there's a second move, which is then putting that customer perspective within a broader context. And I think that helps you get at the essence of something. So it's just, you know, like it's taking research seriously and it's trying to promote a perspective that I think is perhaps not used as much within market research. That's really interesting. Can you give us a specific project? I mean, obviously, you probably can't name the client or details of an outcome, but like an example of how it's played out? Yeah. So, I mean, it's not incredibly, well, I'll say it's not incredibly unusual. It is unusual because it's such a small perspective of, say, the overall market research industry, but it's aligned with broader sort of cultural approaches like semiotics and ethnography. The approach I use is discourse analysis, which is based on language. So what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to study and investigate cultural phenomenon. So they're the things that are shared by people rather than looking at the, you know things that are 
like emotions or needs or motivations that are the properties of individuals. I'm looking at phenomenon that exist within the broader culture. An example of that might be one of the things that I do a lot for advertising companies is early stages of creative development or when they're working out a brand proposition. They might have a particular idea that they want to see what sort of conversations are happening within the broader culture. I said I have a preference for naturally occurring data. And that just means that data that that isn't necessarily provoked by research. So one of the things that would be online conversations. So an example would be a car manufacturer we're interested in looking at proposition around electric vehicles. And the proposition they'd hit on was the car of tomorrow. Now, I might be misremembering this. It could have been the car of the future, but it was the car of tomorrow. And they wanted me to look at and see what sort of um, cultural groups or what sort of cultural discourses that resonated with. And there were three sort of areas where that idea resonated or didn't resonate. One was among very environmentally friendly people who didn't drive a lot. Basically, they saw electric vehicles as the car of tomorrow because they saw moving towards a society which was less reliant on the automobile. So it was more environmentally friendly. So the car of tomorrow actually meant a future that there were fewer cars. There was another group of people that were early adopters. They liked electric vehicles because they were a new thing and they were a new technology, but they weren't particularly motivated by the idea that it was new motor technology. They just liked any new technology. So they were also early adopters with computers, early adopters with you know, home heating systems, early adopters with anything. Again, the idea of the car of tomorrow wasn't the car that was the motivating factor. It was the fact that it resonated with some of the, 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 the sort of the culture of early adopters. People who were looking to buy a new car, the car of tomorrow actually had a negative connotation. So one of the discourses around electric vehicles is that the, the technology is still immature. Still not quite mature, you know, for long drives. It's not mm-hmm. robust enough. So the car of tomorrow was something that was actually undermined amongst, you know, sort of the bulk of motorists because they saw the car of tomorrow as being something not for today. So I was looking at essentially the cultural discourses that were happening within society, both, say, within news reporting, online talk, you know, going to car groups, talking with them and things like that. And it was, it's this idea that we can get insights from outside the consumer, from outside the client that exists within the culture. And they're the type of things that are sometimes under-examined, I believe. Yeah, that's such a great illustration of how context is really important in, in language informing kind of the, not kind of, exactly the uh, messaging that needs to go out to the market yeah. to resonate with them. Yeah. So there has been a lot of transition inside of market research, and I mean market research is a broad insights category. So you have obviously consumer experience, which is just blowing up right now, growing at a like 22% year over year for the next five years is projected. You have user experience, which has been growing, which is predominantly centered more on qualitative assessments. What do you see as the role of insights in a modern brand? And how do you think it's going to evolve over the next five years? Not that I'm a cynic or critic or I'm or a contrarian. I am a bit partly of all three of those things. From my perspective, sometimes I think that insight is used too much as a crutch. So as a way, as a basis for making decisions rather than a basis for informing decisions. And I think in the past it's a phenomenon that's accelerated in, you know, in the past 
10 years, I'd say there's very much a managerial orientation towards insights. So they're used essentially to make internal decisions a, a lot of the time. And when I mean make decisions, I don't mean someone gets these insights and goes, oh, let's see what we can make of this. Let's get another bit of evidence. I think sometimes the insights are used as a proxy for decision making. And I don't think that's a good thing. And I don't think that's the value of insights. So I think, I'm not entirely sure, but I think there is a recognition that this is happening. And there is, you know, a pushback against just talking about insights in terms of de-risk you know, just talking about insights in terms of making things safer, but talking about and going back to discourse analysis, if you think about always talking about insights as a way of making things safer, of making things secure, of de-risking, it's very much a perspective that is at odds with an entrepreneurial mindset, which is about taking a gamble, taking a, a risk, being creative being innovative. So I think the language around insights, sometimes we have to be careful about how we talk about insights, because the way in which we talk about them constructs what they are and determines to a certain degree how they're used. One of the things I'd worry about is that we don't talk about insights as the basis for creativity, as basis for making connections between different ideas and talking about them positively um so as you said insights is a broad chart so obviously there are forms of insight and forms of research which absolutely have to be used for security and have to be used for making sure that um, decisions made are secure and are based on robust evidence but at the same time i don't think that can be all of insights and i think that the language has to ensure that it covers you know the possibility for insights to be a source of creativity and a source of innovation as well that's an interesting point of view you know and you're right that it's all about data-driven decisions because those are supposedly going to create the best possible outcomes when you look at the companies that are widely successful especially recently you've got like shopify and zoom who also did ipo Uh, shopify of course i think is is in um canada so, yep. you know, you've, and that's just two, right? There's, there's a lot of other ones. So with the, with respect to those IPOs, you look, you listen to the founder stories and there wasn't, I mean, I would say it was more like a stumbling along as opposed to this like real clear laser focus uh, point of view on this. Well, I will do this. This is yep. the input and this yep. will be the output. And I think, you know, that's essentially how I would see, certainly look, while I do quantitative re- research and I have a background in quantitative research, most of the research I do, the vast bulk is qualitative. And one of the things I like about qualitative research is that it, it's often easier to have strategic conversations around qualitative research because there isn't the absoluteness, there isn't the certainty that sometimes quantitative results can be a bit restrictive in what you can do with them. So I like the idea of insights as being, you know, as you said, a sort of, the, you know, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs, not that there's stumbling around, but, you know, you don't necessarily, there's a serendipity about, you know, some of the things that happen, big bit businesses, you know, where which necessarily can't be f- foreseen. But I like the idea that insights are used as a way of illumination rather than support. That's the, the, the old joke about, you know, how drunkard Mm. uses a lamppost so he uses one for support we should use them instead for illumination i would like the idea of insights to be used you know more positively sometimes i think there is a discourse of risk and a discourse of danger and a threat of you know not having enough evidence when 
the very best evidence will always be you know partial i suppose is 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 one thing to keep in mind people talk about mps and criticize uh, mps absolutely every methodology has its flaws what's important is to recognize that no solution no approach to research is partial and really the best thing to do is to be fairly um liberal about the range of research approaches that you use i think that's sometimes hard when you have a very structured approach to research yeah i like that i like the squishiness associated with but then also the discipline associated with that point of view right it's the quant tells us what and the qual tells us why uh, and really understanding and uncovering and then creating a narrative around the data. You know, we don't, nobody has 2.3 kids. No. It's hard for us as humans to be able to view the world through a lens of, you know, absolute sort of pie charts and what have you. You know, all those representations are necessary, but they're always partial. And I think that's something that's sometimes f- forgotten is that whatever our 100, 200, slide you know deck of slides says it's always partial and i think if there's one thing that i would like the insight industry really to take on is that idea of more of a critical perspective about the limitations of the there's nothing wrong with you know with being partial you know being limited but i think there's a sometimes there's a reluctance to talk about the limitations of particular approaches or methodologies because you know we're operating commercial businesses and no one wants to go out and go hey my my approach is is partially flawed but, you know that, that's not a, a really great proposition but that's the truth and i think clients understand that and i th- think it's to have the confidence to say hey my approach is partial but it gives you this perspective and it emphasizes this you know part insight and there's another perspective which emphasizes this element of insight they're different they could be complement you know they could be complementary sometimes they're even competitive but i don't think it's helped by someone coming along and saying look i can predict 100% of what all of your customers are going to do you know in the next week because you know it's not real it's not realistic and clients you know are experienced enough they see enough vendors that they know the limitations of different approaches so i think you know there is a, a degree to which there's a methodological maturity where we acknowledge that there are limitations to certain approaches. And I think what that does is it opens up the room for lots of different approaches rather than undermining trust in a particular solution. I think that transparency and that accountability actually promotes you know, confidence that if you're acknowledging that there are limitations, then at least somebody you know, is going to believe that you're being um, transparent. So with that framework, are you seeing like your projection over the next five years, you know, your crystal ball, which all researchers like to think we have, right? Do do you think there's going to be material growth in one specific methodology? The one thing I think, you know, because I do look at things from a sort of a, a social cultural lens is that I don't think market research is exceptional, you know, in that it's not different from any other industry. And I think the trend, you know, the current trends and the trend of the last 50 years since the beginning of the market research industry has been a trend towards more automation. I think, you know, that's absolutely, you can't get, you can't get away, away from that. I don't necessarily think that's 100% a good thing. And I think one of the things that we're seeing in other industries, particularly within the tech industry, is more consideration of the broader context for how technology is used. And I think that's something that could be interesting from an Mm. insight perspective. So when you look at AI, and I'm just back from 
Florence, actually, where the ACL conference was on. I wasn't there. My wife is a computational linguist, so um, I, I have an ear to all these things that are happening in AI, is that explainable AI is going to be a huge thing in terms of AI. So there's a, a, a concern that a lot of artificial intelligent systems and the use of algorithms, that they're not necessarily transparent, that we don't really understand how mm. they work, and that they might, might actually, I suppose, uh, reproduce bias rather than be a very unbiased, objective view. Mm-hmm. So I think that's interesting from an insight point, point right. of view. So that while there will be this emphasis of automation, automation, there's nothing you can do. As companies get larger, the incentive and the need to automate more parts of the organization you know, increases. So that's that, I think that's non-negotiable. Uh, HR is automated. Finance is automated. Of course, insights are going to be, to be automated. But I think parallel to, to that for the insights industry particularly i think there will be this need for greater consideration of the transparency of certain approaches and within ai that means more sociologists more ethnographers more people from the humanities who are being brought in to complement this very um, technical very automated processes to try and add a layer of interpretability to them and to try and add, I suppose, um, to try and explain them and help people understand that when they're using these automated systems, you know, what's going on inside and the sort of assumptions that they're built on, the sort of assumptions that they emphasize. So that would be, I suppose I'm saying that because I'm a sociologist and I'm hoping that that will be a a big trend, but I I do believe that you have to look to other industries to see where the trends are coming. I would imagine being married to a computational linguist, you don't win many arguments. Depends what they're about. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Probably enough said on that subject. So tell us, what is your personal oh, motto? God. I, I honestly, I sorry, I did see that question. I don't, I, I, I don't know. I don't. I, I, I have. I, I, I wouldn't. I'm not a complicated person, but I am a complicating person. So I tend to ask more questions than give answers. So I couldn't ever have a single. You know, have a single. Oh, sorry. Um, in the. Is it, what's my motto? No, I don't have a motto. Go on. I was going to say something about in, in, <laughs> I was going to say something about in the presence of data. So I, I, even though we've had this great conversation, just you know, shooting the breeze, I do like having a piece of data to discuss things while we're just discussing them. So that's what I like about in, insights. One of the things that brought me to market research was when you're having an argument and you have a big piece of data and you're using that as you know as maybe a starting point for a discussion or, you know, what do we make of this? What does this say? So, you know, like discuss, I, I, I do like discussing things in the presence of data, but that's certainly not a motto that would be put on my tombstone. I don't. <laughs> you know what? Data creates this like super comfortable. My worst moment is happy hour, like the social things that yes. happen at events. Yeah. That is yeah. like, all I want to do is not go to that. Yes. But I love sitting down and talking about business problems or, like you said, data or something like that tangible. It creates a security. No, that is, look, that is my, my. I mean, I'm very frustrating as a, as a colleague because I do, I only really feel comfortable talking. I like talking about work. You know, like I, I, it's, I'm interested in it. So yeah. I, you know, like I, I, I like, you know, I like talking, I like Talk, talking about work and as you say you know there's a certain security you know security but actually you know you find that a lot of people who are really interested in what they're doing like talking about you know work as, uh, as well 
My guest today has been Emmett O'Brien, founder of Quiddity. Thank you, Emmett, very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast. Thank you very much, Jim. Everyone else, if you found value in this episode, please take time, screen capture, share it. I really appreciate that. It helps other industry professionals like yourself find it. Emmett, it has been a joy. I will, of course, include your contact information in the show notes. But just in case people don't click there, how would somebody get in contact with you? LinkedIn or email ms at quiddity.ie. And of course, email is probably a really good way to do that, but that information will be on the website and in the show notes. Have a great rest of your day, everybody. And Emmett, again, thanks. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com.